Welcome, everyone, again to another episode of the Surma Pod. This is the podcast for the Sports and Entertainment Risk Management Alliance. I am Rich Lenkov. I'm the host of the podcast. Also, I'm the CEO and founder of uh, Surma. And we're very lucky to have Dan Novak today with us discussing uh, liability in cases ripped from the headlines. Uh, Dan is a media lawyer and First Amendment expert as legal analysis frequently appears in The Hollywood Reporter, and his podcast, his podcast Slander Down, Slander Town, dives into free speech slugfest. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Let's get into it. So we see an increasing number of uh, movies that are based on true stories, that are uh, based on real-life events and real-life characters. We generally see those stories begin with words like... Um, based on or inspired by or this is a dramatization first of all what liability do filmmakers face if they don't use those terms and do those terms really mean anything do they really shield uh, producers and others from liability so there's two risks associated with dealing with real life people the first risk is the more obvious one defamation you know, uh, more specifically liable, that you are damaging an individual's reputation and livelihood by portraying facts about them, or at least information that would be perceived by the audience to be factual, that subjects them to hatred, shame, or ridicule. The second less common fact pattern involves claims of commercial misappropriation, where it turns on using an individual's likeness or identity in a way that uh, robs them, or, or I should say, diverts their commercial value away from that individual into your production. So think of doing a movie where, you know, um, it's a movie about Shaquille O'Neal, but it's not really about him. You just slap his name on it, and he's uh, a congressman instead of a basketball player. So that's a really interesting point, because um, in a lot of these situations, we are seeing an increasing um focus on whether the story is or isn't uh, dramatized, whether there's, a, you know, embellishment or whether there's outright, um, you know, using the story. For example, you know, there's lots of examples. We've seen, you know, a very popular film last year was the uh, Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee story. Um, we saw the Jeffrey Dahmer story, which was one of the most watched programs on, on Netflix. Uh, the Crown uh, dealt with, you know, the royal family. Um, you mentioned uh, Shaquille O'Neal. There was Winning Time, right? That was the story of the Lakers in the 80s. And very famously, uh, there was a character that was uh, you know, named Jerry West. So it was actually Jerry West. The former... <laughs> That's a coincidence, though, the character yeah, exactly. and the real person. Yeah. a guy named Jerry West. Also, Jerry West, who's a former uh, Laker, uh, both player and executive. In fact, the logo, right? The, the image of the NBA logo is fashioned after Jerry West. And he's uh, portrayed as a uh, as an angry, uh, boozy uh, womanizer in the film. Um, and at one point during the film, the uh, actor turns to the camera and breaks the fourth wall and says words to the effect of, this actually is a portrayal of Jerry West. And many point to that as a distinguishing factor between that case and many others. Explain to us why that's important. Well, <laughs> it's it's something that, I'm increasingly seeing as as Hollywood sort of mines real life for its drama and and tries to take these larger than life stories and and bring them to to viewers and it can be it's not as though every single one of them is completely 
made up or invented, but oftentimes no, nothing's ever going to be a hundred percent. And so, uh, over time, we've seen them get a little bit more bold and, and dip deeper into fiction. At least that's my perception. And for years, the, the talisman that they've offered is that based on a true story or parts have been fictionalized, that's a disclaimer. What good is a disclaimer if you disclaim the disclaimer? And that's what's happening here is you're turning to the camera and saying, the lawyers put that there, that this mm. is real. That's that's winking at the audience. And so the law is not so mechanical as to suggest that, well, if you have the right words, you know, um, abracadabra, you can't sue me. I think it, the, the way the laws tend to develop is you look at whether or not the, the consumer, the ultimate end user, the, the viewer at home, the moviegoer, et cetera, is deciding for themselves that that is who Jerry West really actually is. What about the argument, though, that, you know, if you're a celebrity and you're a public figure, you put yourself out there. One of the risks associated with that is that people will use your likeness, your story. Uh, don't you give up the right, a certain right to privacy once you become a celebrity in the, in the public domain? You certainly have no standing to challenge someone decided to make a movie about you. And even people that are not famous have have found to their chagrin that you can wind up in a movie. Um, the Hurt Locker, you know, Academy Award winning film was premised on an article about an actual bomb, you know, diffuser in, uh, I, I believe it was Afghanistan. And uh, he was kind of hurt to see that <laughs> hurt being an understatement. He was hurt to see that Jeremy Renner um, was in, in some ways portraying portraying him. But the court threw it out and said, it doesn't matter that you're, whether you're famous or not, you know, we're a lot, Hollywood and, and the creative field is allowed to mine life for for content, and there's a public interest in them doing so. On the other hand, these celebrities and others have worked so hard to cultivate real value associated with their name. There's a reason why you pay Shaquille O'Neal millions of dollars for Icy Hot or whatever he's associated with these days. So uh, it, it can feel unreasonable to kind of free ride on their goodwill and reputation. That being said, you know, on the other, other, other hand, uh, at the end of the day, if something is untrue, it has to be provably false. It has to be something that the producers or writers knew to be false in the case of celebrities. So there, there's still plenty of protection there to be able to color a little bit outside the lines, either accidentally or oftentimes intentionally you can embellish while still staying kind of firmly within that First Amendment protection. You mentioned uh, that it has to be provably false. What, where does malice come into uh, this equation? How does uh, the burden sit with the plaintiff in proving that not only was their story or their image uh, or used, but there was some element of malice there? So think of a defamation case as a, a checklist, and each factor is dispositive for the defendant. First, you have to have a, a statement that is provably false. It has to be proven to be about the defendant specifically. Some defendants have run into trouble there when there's composite characters. The Wolf of Wall Street case um, uh, fell victim to that for the plaintiff where his name, uh, the real, uh, his name was uh, Koskoff and the character in the film had elements of him, but elements of others. Um, and then, it also has to have, you know, be classically harmful. It, it can be merely negative is not good enough. You get through all that, 
you still have that kind of savings clause, which is it has to be subject to fault on the on the speaker's side. So for some people, like your average Joe Schmo, that's going to be a negligence standard. But for anybody of prominence, it's going to be that actual malice standard. So you have to you have to just to get to actual malice, you have to clear some hurdles. And at that point, you're looking at whether the speaker or the producers, again, the filmmakers took any steps to verify the information how strong their sourcing was. So to return to Jerry West, who, to be clear, has not sued, he's just threatened to sue. And there's been some passage of time. So with each coming day, it seems less likely he's going to sue. They, You look to the author of the book that it was based on. He said, yeah, actually, although it wasn't in the book, I did have sources that would attest to his fiery temper, his penchant for drinking, et cetera. So um, if, if there were indeed sources, and these sources were people that were in a position to know the truth of what they asserted. So you're talking to people that were up close and personal Jerry West. You're not talking about like somebody that, you know, his dog walker, you're talking about his, uh, his friends and family, his work colleagues. If they're saying that and painting that picture, yeah, that's, that's going to be very hard for someone to overcome, even though those people could be honestly mistaken. They could be dishonestly spreading uh, innuendo and rumor but you have to look at the objective reasonableness of the person that is t- setting out to tell that story. And if you can't blame them for believing, then no liability. Then these stories don't seem to be going away, right? I mean, they're very popular and it seems like there is a market for them for sure. We all want to sort of peek behind the scenes of, of famous people and see what the backstory is to what we've seen in the public. That being said, do you think that when producers are you know, thinking about putting together the next film about a Dahmer or a uh, you know, royal family, are they putting into their calculus and maybe even putting into their budget the risks associated with this kind of story and we're calculating, well, what are the odds that someone will sue us versus uh, going out and spending money on actually acquiring the license or the mm. permission for some, for using some of this? So. I think the streamers are starting to learn their lesson because Netflix has been hit a number of times and there's only so many times you can keep making the same mistake. Mm. One one problem is that there's no such thing as life rights. So you can't really secure the right to tell someone's story. So what do we look to? You can license or option uh, an autobiography or biography of someone so that you're you're buying it from them, even though it's a form of copyright rather than some sort of free-floating, you know, um, identity intellectual property. More often, what you're doing is you're signing them up to be consultants for the film. Of course, what's going to come with that is a waiver. So the uh, docudrama series called Inventing Anna about Anna Delvey, the con woman who built various people in New York City out of you know millions of dollars, she was paid. She, I, I think she may have even signed, I don't know if she signed the agreement while in prison or shortly out, but she's like, you know, she's on board with the project. And so they have purchased peace from her at a minimum. On top of that, that that production licensed or optioned uh, a, a book written by one of her victims. So that person is going to be covered. So usually you just try to cover your bases and, and, and bring people in. So oftentimes the central character in some of these uh, some of these docudramas or bio, biopics is taken care of. What happens is the peripheral ones are where people let their guard down, and that is the Queen's Gambit case, which has this very peripheral character who's a real chess prodigy that they ran into trouble with. Uh, there's um, uh, the Laundromat film, which is about the Panama Papers, which had a sprawling you know, cast of people. You know, some, some people felt that they were unfairly maligned in that. Um, 
you have the FX feud series where um, Catherine Zeta-Jones played Olivia de Havilland, who's not one of the main characters, but sort of comes in and out. Olivia de Havilland was not happy with her portrayal. So at a certain point, you, you have to decide whether or not you want to go all the way through the script and just secure everyone, probably functionally too expensive, too time-consuming. But we're going to err probably on the side of caution going forward. Dan, how do the courts, if they do decide, or if a jury decides that there has been um, defamation, how do the courts generally in these cases look at damages? How do you calculate what, uh, if any, damages the plaintiff has suffered? Oh, God, you just just make up a number because (laughs) there's no predicting these things. Uh, Juries are just really tough to get a read on. We saw in the Johnny Depp case that they sort of paradoxically gave Depp like 10 million or something and and heard 2 million. So like they both owed money to each other, but you just do the math and he got eight more than her. It's it's these things are really tough. I mean, you try to look at objective factors like loss of business. So what's an easy case where somebody lost an endorsement contract. And so if somebody was a spokesperson for a product and it was not renewed, that's axiomatic damages, right? But more often, it's more nebulous than that. Would they have gotten another film deal? That was one of the questions with Johnny Depp, which was, did he lose really lose the Pirates of the Caribbean films? There was some evidence that maybe his his substance abuse problems and lack of reliability is what prevented him from getting future contracts from Disney. And it wasn't really um, the the uh, the information that Amber Heard um, alleged. So, um, but then you get to pain and suffering. So with Sarah Palin, when she was trying to prove her case against the New York Times, not a libel and fiction case, obviously, but uh, they asked her, you know, what harm? Well, it really didn't feel good to read something untrue about me. Did you see a therapist? No, I handled it through yoga and meditation. Well, you don't sound like you're really that far out. So that case was dismissed for other reasons, but you're looking for someone to add up some bills there to show that they really went out uh, um, and, and suffered. Yeah, and and in, a, in an industry where sort of the old adage of any publicity is good publicity sometimes is actually true, you know, to your earlier point and, and you know, the Sarah Palin example, you know, in some cases you could argue as a defendant that you're actually better off after uh, something like this because who else would be talking about you uh, if not for this allegation? So I suspect that's the answer frequently for a defendant. Exactly. There, there, that is an argument. You can say that if anything, you came out ahead due to this false, allegedly false thing that we that we published. I would say that the the typical defendant is someone that is really going to court over their hurt feelings. Olivia de Havilland's claim it was to be clear it was a misappropriation claim. The that second category about using your name without permission. But really, what bothered her was that in the series. Uh, the Catherine Zeta-Jones' portrayal of her used some swear words, was a little bit aggressive. Nothing that I would bat an eye at, but apparently she found that really offensive. Um, for the uh, Queen's Gambit case involving the chess prodigy, nothing. She, the, the person is not an important character, but because they wanted to make the main character seemed more important. They said, well, no one had ever competed against men before and beat them. This woman had. So she felt that this like central aspect of her uh, identity and her accomplishment as a chess grandmaster was being diminished. No one thought less of her uh, because of it. No one would think to. But again, it, it often does come down to hurt feelings, which is not what defamation is supposed to address. But, you know, courts are are going to let these claims play out sometimes. 
Dan Novak, thank you so much for joining us on the Sermon Pod. Remind our listeners and viewers where they could follow you. Well, put into Slander Town into your Google search bar. You can find it on Apple or any of the other podcast places. And um, otherwise, uh, look out for something on Hollywood Reporter I've got cooking up soon. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Ideas, strategies, and opinions represented on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not represent the ideas, strategies, and opinions of their employers.